Welcome to the Gentleman Ultra podcast. Uh, today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by one of my favorite football writers, uh, an author, a poet, a journalist, and the co-host of the Start Your podcast, a musician. I didn't write, I didn't forget to say that too. Uh, my guest has written for The Guardian, The New York Times, The Economist, uh, regularly contributes to The Ringer, and of course has a, a few, I should say a few books out this year, a couple of them. One of them is called One of Them. And the other one's called In the End, It Was All About Love. Uh, Musa Akwanga, welcome to the Gentleman Ultra podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, man. Cheers, Frank. Uh, it's Very an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. So I'm really stoked. Um, so I get the sense, reading some of your tweets of lately, you're starting to turn and become a bit of a, a diehard Napoli fan. Wow, wow. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> I, have no, I have no allegiances. <laughs> I would say, look, I think... Um, I really love the way they uh, take to the game. I've, look, I've always got a soft spot for teams that go for it. And Napoli are a team that they just, well, Spalletti's teams have always entertained, right? You know, even back in the, the Roma days and with De Rossi, like, Spalletti has always played entertaining football wherever he's coached. The thing about this Napoli team is, it's the way where they've like just had this incredible turnover of players. But what they've done with the new players is unreal. It's like they've given the new players, the young players, the keys to the attack. And that's been really thrilling. So obviously, like, not a diehard, but like <laughs> someone that adores. I'm a diehard fan of attacking football, I would say. So teams like Napoli and Atalanta, I have a huge soft spot for. Mm. Yeah. Like teams that can just take four goals off you in 20 minutes. And this is the thing, like Napoli, even before Napoli were doing what they were doing in Serie A, they still were the team. If there was any team in, in Serie A, you are like, they could put four goals on you. And one of them will be Politano from 20 yards. Like, that's just like the Napoli. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah, I, cool, I, do have, yeah. I do have a soft spot. I, I, so I definitely have a soft spot for them. Yeah, a soft spot for sure. Ah, that's good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's nice. It's always good to see them do well. Yeah, but, well, well, then you would have seen, if you like Spalletti's team, I know you're a Manchester United fan, you would mm. have seen the, the heady days of Roma and Manchester United when they had their, a few ding-dong you know, and one-sided but, matches. But the way that was one-sided is interesting because I think actually even in the 7-1 where United beat them Old Trafford, I think Roma had very good early chance, maybe got the goal of the game with De Rossi's volley. And the only reason we won by that margin is because Roma play open football. That's the thing. So I've always respected that. Even teams that get beaten, I'm like, well, they badly they, they go for it. Um, and, you know, Roma, again, are quite an exciting side at the moment. So, yeah, it's... a. Uh, Serie A, like I say to everyone, people sleep on that league too much. <laughs> they're getting they're getting wise to it though, Frank. You notice, like even on Twitter, you can see now more and more people are actually like checking out the league because it's a real vibe at the moment. I'm yeah, loving it. Yeah, and if they had a, a a bigger a bigger engagement, I guess across the English speaking world and more publicity, mm. you know, like even like here in Australia, you can only watch it on on pay TV. You you see no oh, highlights, wild. you see no league tables in the the newspaper no nothing no one knows about it unless you unless you follow um nightmare right. I've, I've got i've got like the zone so i i watch on that but doesn't doesn't uh australia have a pretty big like, italian community though yes like, yeah yeah, yeah so it's, it's a bit of a it seems like a bit of a no-brainer to, to yeah support it a bit better yeah anyway. it, but that's that's the way it is i think now in australia like you know essentially every competition is behind a different paywall unless you oh, have no, or no, different no. streaming service so unless you have that yeah, yeah. then you can't see it but yeah, that's yeah, good. That's that. good to see you engaging with the Napoli fans. I'm sure they 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 love that. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh they love. Oh they love. Is that is that your team as well? Or no, it's not. Yeah, yeah. My my oh, team's they, Inter they Milan, but I find as I get older, I just I'm becoming more neutral, and I'm just it's just I'm just football, happy to it's just watch like great. Yeah, yeah, I mean Inter obviously as well. Inter is such a great story. 
you know, when they won in uh, 2010, it was like the completion of a massive story arc. It was a bit like the final, like, um, the final movies of like, what's it, Lord of the Rings, like Return of the King, almost. Like, they've been out in the wilderness. You've been out in the wilderness for so long into, you know, since the 60s and, uh, well, at that, at that very top European level. And it was like the kind of last chance saloon, wasn't it, for all those players, a lot of them? It was, yeah, yeah. yeah. We were, we were, we were Gollum and we knew what the, the precious, the quest, <laughs> the precious <laughs> ring. We knew what we wanted. Yeah. Cause after that, yeah, it wasn't, it was, it was going to essentially either capitulate or that was it. That was the one season, you know, the one season it to was. rule them all. That's for sure. It was. Oh, but, but yeah, what, what a team though. I mean, mm. not just like, um, not just incredible footballs technically and tactically smart, but just tough, tough humans. Yes. Like yes. really like hard. I mean, Kiva looked like an ice hockey player and played like, in terms of the toughness, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yep. And then, and I saw Stankovic's summers on the bench the other day. Mm, yeah, he's a goalkeeper. Stankovic is, is We're yeah. old, we're old friends. Yeah, yeah, anyway, I know, sorry to, I know. Yeah. But even, even like Lucio, Walter Samuel, Cambiasso, like Melito had, I've said this before, but like Diego Melito had the season of his life. Um, well, he was so underrated. Genoa, he? he was brilliant. He was like lights out of Genoa, wasn't he? Mm. He never got the platform. Yeah, he's like one of those Hollywood actors that never got cast properly, and then he just gets one role and he just cleans it, <laughs> wins every award oh. possible. So, what was your first? Oh, like I've heard you talk about um, following Italian football, watching Italia mm. ninety. Um, yeah. Was that was that your first World Cup as a as a kid to, to sit down and actually watch, watch? I guess the first one's allowed to watch. I'm still bitter about that. So, eighty six World Cup, I was told to go to bed, and I was I was seven years old by then, so I thought it was a bit unfair. It was basically like curfew so you can't get yeah i was like no you're not staying out to watch this so world cup 86 i wasn't allowed to watch so 90 was the first one i watched um so i think it was a bit of that and then it was straight after that channel Four football italia so they kind of went back to back and then of course when you start watching football italia and you've got the three dutchmen there that just took it to another level there was something about there was something about the way those teams played in the early nineties that you knew you were witnessing like high art, like that Milan team of, of the early nineties was, it actually felt futuristic. Like it was the one time I've been to a, um, a store to buy a football boot and thought, I'm not going to buy them. I have too much respect. It was the Lotto Van Bastens. I didn't buy them because I had too much respect for Van Basten because he was so good. <laughs> I was like, even if you're a kid wearing those, you cannot like, you can't do that. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, know that's that feeling. What, that's I, had, I had a pair of I had a pair of Deodoras as a kid, and oh, wow, there was yes. no no chance in hell I was going to get the Roberto Baggio ones. But it was just the the very basic economy model. I'll take those ones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> were they with the green with the green uh, sash? The, uh, I had the well, yeah, that. But I had the uh, just the plain black with the fluoro yeah. yellow. I thought that's that's about as high yeah, level. It's, as yeah, because it's hallowed ground, isn't it? It's mm. hallowed ground. Very yeah. special. Yeah. So I've heard you talk about before, like your love of. Marco Van Basten, oh my and God. and of course, um, I've also heard heard you talk about. Actually, we'll touch on Marco Van Basten first. So mm. I know his career. We were essentially robbed of, yes. I guess, the prime, the peak of his career. Yeah. What are your thoughts on like not only his career, but when you were watching him as a kid, were oh you trying God. to replicate, or you know, as as, as you were older, were you, were you trying to replicate this stuff in your mind? Were you were you were you doing what you thought he was doing? <laughs> like, you know, yeah, there was. What, what do you think of him now, even looking back when you're watching old tapes and stuff? I think technically, technical perfection. 
nobody had greater technique than Marco Verbasten. You could say players, like as a, as a pure number nine, his technique was of the same level as the Brazilian Ronaldo. Like there was no one greater than those two in terms of the art of striking. Like there's always a game I talk about with Van Basten. It was the 4-0 over um, Gothenburg at San Siro in 92 in Champions League. And he scored all four goals. And there's a bicycle kick that he scores. It's unbelievable. He takes it like the ball's actually shoulder height. And he takes it so perfectly that it bounces on the six yard box. And it goes into the side netting. Like a lot of bicycle kicks you see, and it's like they hammer it. Like there is there is control, but it's mostly power. That is the first bicycle kick I've seen where it was like more control than power. It, it was, was almost like he, it was almost like he placed the bicycle kick. You know, like yeah, it was spelled by. It's if you watch it, it's like absolutely spelled by. And you can watch him make the decision. He's like, oh, that's where I'm going to put it. You watch him make the decision midair, and he's like, yeah, I'm putting it there. Um, so yeah, Van Basten just it was just the most the most clinical. As one, if you had to sort of say. Who would you choose to finish a one-on-one -on -one chance for your life? It's it's maybe just Van Basten, even ahead of peak Brazilian Ronaldo, because Brazilian Ronaldo was astonishing at one-on-ones with the keeper. Maybe he still is the best, but I can, I, I can't forget that one that he put wide in 0-2 against Oliver Kahn in the final. And I'm thinking like Van Basten scored almost every major one-on-one -on -one you could imagine. Uh, See, so yeah, I'm obsessed obsessed with him, obviously. Um, and it was the way that, like, you know, there, there were certain strikers where they would get two chances a game and they're guaranteed to score. Like, the Stoa Bucharest in the Champions League, in the European Cup final, as it then was. And they just took that away from Bucharest in, like, half an hour. Him and Hullet. Yeah. And Hullet, we'll get into Hullet and Rijkaard in a moment. But, but just, like, the way they worked in concert with each other. Like, this is still the AC Milan team. This is no disrespect to the great entity of 2010, which was amazing. The AC Milan team is the only team of that era, of course, He's the only team I think that would go against Bar Pep's Barcelona in a series and beat them. It's the only one I think that is, in terms of club side, it was that good. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's 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 funny because even when I started following, I started really following Inter. They had, of course, had the three Germans. So mm. to me, it was like Klinsmann, yeah, Mateus, wow. and Bremer. And to me, it was wow. like they were on a different level. So I've, I've said in the past before on here. Like to me, Mateus was like, Lothar Mateus oh was God. like a robot. And he just, you know, it was like Robocop, you know, meets Terminator, meets, mm. you know, a footballer. He just, he couldn't be stopped. And he was everywhere. He was scoring. He was stopping goals. He was setting up goals. He was playing at the front. He was playing as a sweeper. He was in the midfield. Was, um, and that was He's such a contrast genius, yeah. to the three, you know, you had the three Germans and you had the three Dutchmen as a kid. And, and that was so, you know, one seemed to be so efficient and machine-like and it, you know, even with Klinsman there and the others, mm. you know, Reichardt. Artists, the, painters, poets. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> even I had a little like toy wood hullet doll in my room because he was just a cool dude. They were just, they seemed, but, you know, so what's cool. Amazing, Frank. Is, isn't it funny how you have like, obviously with, with um, Italy now and its political situation at the moment, it's fascinating because that is a kind of political system or situation that seems to reject the outsider. But at the heart of Italian football, you had like to have, three German players and three Dutch players being the stars of an Italian team. It felt like quite a sort of pan-European project. And that's what I think drew me to it. I just thought, wow, like the journey of being Dutch and going to Italy and making a whole new life and having this incredible career, the journey of being German and going to Italy. And it, it, it's, I think there was a sense of uh, adventure watching these teams, if that makes sense, that I kind of bought into. I don't know how to express it better than that. And not only that, you had 
you know, he's earlier, there was Socrates at Fiorentina, Careca, Udinese, oh Maradona was with Napoli. You know, that list goes on and on and on and on. It's it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. 80s, ni- 80s and 90s. Italian. Falcao at Roma was another one. Frank Farina at Bari, the Australian. <laughs> you, can yeah. t- you can tell how they played. Actually, didn't you have Bresciano at Parma? Yeah, Bresciano was there. Vince was, Grella was that, there that, as well. That's a yep. player. Yeah, he was was a player. Fantastic. This is yeah. the thing. Even by the sounds of their names, you knew how well they played. Like Falcao. You don't need to show me Falcao. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. It's funny, actually. Bresciano, um, who I've talked to a close friend of his um, to try to get him on the pod. And he's essentially just walked away from football. And he just, wow. he said, oh, you know, that was what I did in the past. And I'm done with that stage of my life. And I'm happy to move on. You know, he, he you still see him occasionally at football games and involved with Football Australia, but mm. yeah, no, he's like, oh, I'm I'm sort of done with it, which is I'm like, yeah, I, I said, oh, that's cool, I'm happy he at least considered to come on the pod, but um, yeah, he's. I think he's, you almost need to be like that in some cases in football because yeah. it's such a how do you replace the high unless you walk away from it completely? You're always chasing it. You see a lot of people who are like still involved in the game who played it, and you can tell they're still chasing the high of trying to. Yeah. You, you'll never be in front of eighty thousand people again. It's you'll crazy, never you'll never do that yeah you'll that never moment, yeah like and okay. he's got such an iconic moment um where he he scores the goal at Homebush in front of 80,000 plus people right. to equalize and give australia the chance to go through the extra time to qualify for their first world cup in you know 20 plus 30 30 odd years um Incredible. and he scores the goal i don't know if you've ever seen it but he scores the goal and he essentially just turns around like a statue he used to do that statue celebration oh wow and it's just wow. absolute no, bedlam goal, and chaos going on around him and he's just standing still just looking at the crowd it's a, it's a great unreal. celebration all in do you know yeah. it's so funny when you see some goal celebrations um and you're like i, I actually I, always, you know, I, I do love a rehearsed goal celebration don't get me wrong but i also love the ones where it's just like spontaneous outpouring of emotion or where the player is clearly like just overcome by the moment i love yeah. i love seeing that when it's just because that actually is the most human thing of all mm. there's a didier drogba goal they had um uh it's a champions league goal he's called against barcelona i think it was 08 and he scores some people strike and he's just he just collapses runs over to the crowd and just collapses on his back and you're like yeah that's that's the most human goal celebration i've seen in a very long time <laughs> yeah yeah it's um, um Forgot his name now. Who's the the goal scorer at the USA '94? The Nigerian. Oh, um, Yakini. Yeah, and he just grabs the goal. And Rest I always piece, thought yeah. if, if I'd ever scored a goal, I think I could. I scored four goals in 17 years as a footballer, as a child. Wow! I remember every single goal like it was yesterday. That I would oh celebrate God. a goal like that goal. Because <laughs> the way I used, to count, I used to count them, I used to write them all down on my notebooks. <laughs> The way Even my amateur level, yeah, it's the right, yeah, it's unreal, yeah, yeah, yeah. The way he celebrates that goal, just the pure emotion and the outburst, like it grabs that net and it's just shaking the net and screaming. It's yeah, it's oh, amazing, man. isn't it? Incredible. It's funny what how we just get these well. uh, these like these highs and these emotions just from watching, you know, men it's run wild. around kicking a kicking a football. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't actually even know. I don't understand why football got me the way it did. Um, you know, obviously we'll talk about, you know, just on the, just jumping to like Hurlett and Rijkaard quick. I don't know why Italian football became so addictive, so compelling. I think it's because, I think Italian football was the closest thing to if Formula One was football. Mm. Like the degree of difficulty was so, so, the margin of difficulty was so small, like the, the margin of error, sorry, was so, so small. And the level of difficulty was so high that when you saw these players excelling, 
it blew your mind. Like you said, Beppe Signore scoring 20 odd goals a season in Serie A in that league was is supernatural as an achievement. Yeah. Marco Van Basten averaging what, like, he got like 19 out of 50, I think, in Serie A in that era. That's like, those are unbelievable. Those numbers are like off the scale. Yeah. People don't understand the quality of the defences that were he was playing against at the time. They were like, you know, I think Maradona scored like one and two, which is unreal for midfield in that era. Like it's, I think that's why Serie A was so addictive because you knew how hard it was to do what they were doing and they still were doing it like every week, basically. Yeah, yeah. Were you introduced to football and, and did you have football around you as a young age, like at an early age? So this is the thing I've um, mentioned a couple of times in different places. My granddad was actually the president of the Ugandan FA for a year, uh, Peter Abbey in 1972 or 73, I think you can find Wikipedia actually. And um, he also coached the national team, was involved in the national team setup for a while. So a couple of my cousins or uncles actually played for the Ugandan national side uh, like back in the day. So it was, football was always a thing that people were obsessed with, always talking about. Um, and a different era, I'd like to see what kind of, I'd like to see what kind of careers they could have made professionally, maybe in the modern era. They might've been really quite good. Uh, football was always there in the background. And so by the time I started playing as a, you know, Sunday league, like, you know, amateur, eight, nine, ten years old, I was already like fully obsessed with it. Mm. Mm. Did your, your parents... Are they happy to support that? Like, I know um, your father yeah, yeah. passed away at a young age. Yeah, he passed. My dad passed away when I was four. My mum would um, yeah. drop me off at football training. And um, then I, when I was old enough to start going by myself, I would just get on the train and go. Uh, I played for a really, really, bless them, we were a really bad team. So I joined them. <laughs> they were the only team in the district that wasn't, that still had registrations open. Um, they were called Golden Eagles. And I played for the B team, the under 10 B team. And... God, we lost one game 34 35 nil in like an hour we were like really really bad but we loved it we, we kept turning up and playing and one day we lost we lost four nil one week and 10 two the other week and my cousins were like my god when you lose like this it's so like, no that's really good like for us to lose four nil or 10 two was really good <laughs> yeah. yeah oh that's that's good yeah as long as you had fun that's it it's all oh works. we loved it we absolutely you know? oh my god i loved it i loved yeah, it and our coach it. shout out to coach our coach steve was an amazing guy like he never ever lost his temper with us never yeah. like it was really a gentleman yeah good human yeah that's great that's really cool yeah is that like some of those memories your earliest memories of football playing yeah yeah, yeah. junior well the football? thing is because i was bad because i was part of a bad team for so long when we went up bad team like, because no, they were lovely people we didn't get best results because i was part of a team that got bad results for so long it meant that when i joined a team that was good or you know, getting good results sorry it was amazing because it was the same team spirit as the team that lost lots of games but now we were winning so the great thing was that i never took the winning for granted it was an incredible mm. thing for me so i got to like went to boarding school when i was like uh, 11 years old and the team we had there was just like Oh my God. We had one guy that like played for England schoolboys. So we had an unbelievable level of like, I mean, I was like a good footballer and I was good enough to play with much better players. And I was in my element, man. I was just dream world. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. So I know, I, I know you're another fan of um, another AC Milan. Great. But um, George Weyer. Oh my God. If I, oh my God. if I say his name, that- what's it? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Tears. Tears. The first thing comes to my eyes. I'll tell you that. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind is 
it sounds a bit dramatic, but it's like a dark-skinned African man making a success of himself in the heart of Europe. That is incredibly powerful to see that, like visually, because there were very few black guys in my boarding school. Like there was just, there were two of us and there were very few at the school I went to next, uh, another private school. So you had George Weyer, like through my entire teens, basically going through Europe as this dark-skinned black man in a completely like, often an adverse environment and just with such class and elegance. And like, the thing I love about Weyer's play is that he never wasted a movement right? He had all the skills, right? All the skills, steppers, everything, 360s, but he never wasted. He was so supremely efficient. And that was wild because he didn't even score that many goals, right? He like actually, he averaged like a goal every two games, but he always did exactly what was needed. And you look at those, like the winning goal against Lazio in the last minute, like beats two men, puts into the bottom corner or what, three assists in 15 minutes against Venezia, I think it was. Um, astonishing like, and, and for Savicevic, those two combined so well, like wildly well. And of course, the famous goal, he goes the length of the field, which I watched like on TV as a Sunday afternoon, I was watching it live on TV when he did it. And it's amazing because he scores it and then five minutes later, he gets the ball again, like deep in his own half and the commentator is going wild because he's like, he might do it again. Like at that point, he made anything seem possible. So yeah, yeah, that and that run was special too because it was like from his own sort of corner Six flag and that yeah. and that first touch he does is incredible and he does like that little sort of pirouette three sixty on the halfway yeah, the yeah. Pirouette. because um, you think he might lose possession of it because the two tackles come in he takes a three sixty and then he puts it past the last defender right he slides it round one side of him goes the other and then the finish mm. strokes it like George Weir was. There's a special category that he's in. Like, I think that Samuel Etu had the better career in terms of winning everything. And Samuel Etu might actually be the better footballer in terms of just in terms of like Samuel Etu, just the longevity and what he won for Cameron and what he won for Inter and Barcelona. Like, I think you have to argue maybe he was the best. But Weyer occupies a place that is singular. What, like European, African and World Football Year in the same year. That's... Yeah. I know, I know. And the way he handled himself, like the way he handled himself as well. King George, they called him King George. I mean, like he was never, it was his poise, like all the stuff he took, all the pressure he took, and he just kept coming through. And it was the one time the George Costa, I think he broke his nose with the headbutt for the racist abuse. And I saw that and I thought, first of all, he has to get banned for that. And I thought, what did Costa say? Because everything must have been said to Weyer. Like everything, like you're a black guy playing for Paris Saint-Germain at that time and you're a black guy playing for, for Milan. You must have heard every insult. And somehow he rose, you know, mostly, well, apart from the Costa incident, he rose above everything to win everything. It's unreal. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. Amazing. And I know, like we mentioned, I think, I think I mentioned, like you're a Manchester United fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I've heard you, heard you talk about that in the past, but um, they had some ding dong battles with Juventus in that late sort of oh late nineties. Um, I don't know if you did. You ever see any of those games live? Of course. Or, oh, no, yeah, yeah. Well, on, on, not 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 in person, not in person, yeah. sadly, but always just on television. But Juventus were the masters of the one nil thrashing, yeah. weren't they? They could they would take the lead after like Boxic thirty minutes, Boxic twenty eight. You know, thirty minutes Boxic one nil, and then like they would just you'd never get the ball back off them. It was unreal, right? Like Torricelli, uh, 
who's that guy, the uh, Passotto? I mean, these unbelievable. Where do they find these defenders? Mm. And you couldn't, you couldn't get through them. Yeah, I did. Is that there? I, I, I remember. You know, I think it's in 1996 or 1997. I think it's the oh, Sony right. mini disc shirt. Yeah, the, the Juventus shirt, yeah. was wearing, with, and they went the over two, to the two yellow stars. Yeah, they went over to Turin and played Manchester United. Went over to play Juventus in Turin, and it honestly could have been ten nil. They just absolutely dominated um, Man United. And of course, they were drawn together, I think the year after, I think it was, in the group stage. And then, of course, they played each other in the 99 semi-final. That amazing, the amazing interview when uh, Gary Neville's being interviewed. Yes. Yeah, that's what and I was going to talk about. And Juventus through and yeah. goes, Juventus are qualified. And he just rolls his eyes in horror. He's just like, oh, no, because Juventus were like people... People forget that they went to, well, they don't forget, but three straight, three straight Champions League finals they went to. And they, 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 they could have won all three. And that Juventus team was, they looked unbeatable. Mm. Like when they were beaten, it was actually a miracle that someone actually managed to find a way to do it. They were so, so good. They were so good. What, 97, they got sucker punched by Dortmund in that final. Um, I think Dortmund basically hit them with the counter. They hit them with like the set pieces. And they kind of shell shot. I think Riedler and Shapuzat hit them, like races have shell shocked them. And then you had, um, what, 98 Real Madrid in that horrible final I rewatched recently. And it's just, <laughs> there's nothing to recommend about it. It's just utterly drab, but it's basically Real Madrid just basically nullifying Juve and playing their own game. Um, but yeah, like three finals mm. and could have been three in a row. And Unbelievable. Like Del Piero and Zidane oh was there. God. and. Deschamps and you know Conti was there. It was amazing. Conte, Conte was again underrated player. Amazing, amazing technically, team. Technically off the scale, yeah, yeah, unbelievable yeah. team. Yeah. So yeah, you, and you mentioned Dortmund there. So you've you've moved across to Berlin. You live in Germany, is that correct? Eight years now. Yeah, yeah. Eight, Eight years. years. Wow. Yeah. 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 So what's it like? Do you feel like a Englishman living in? I love it. Germany I feel like one of the or Dutchmen, you know, Englishman you with a Ugandan background living Dutchmen. in. In Germany, how's it? Is that That's sense me, of identity? Yeah. Do you have that sense of identity crisis, or it's, no? I love just, it. I love yeah. it. Look, I always, I think I've emulated my heroes because they were basically people that lived in other European countries and made a life of it. I think that always appealed to me. And eight years now in this incredible city, obviously, it's got many of its challenges, but like overall, it's been a life-changing experience. I love it so much. Right. Yeah. There's even a small thing I do. Like I go down to the local, um, the main train station called Alexanderplatz, one of the main train stations. And there's a sign of like, you know, those big weather maps, these interactive weather maps. It's got like, you know, the weather in Stuttgart, the weather in wherever. And I look at the map of Berlin every now and again on the map and think, wow, that's me in the middle of Europe. And I still get a kick out of that like eight years later after moving here. Yeah. Sense of I came here and made, yeah, came here and made it work. Sense feeling. of gratitude. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, is that and is that why your did your parents move to England for all that reason? Uh, no, they came. Well, they came as refugees. They got um, they were doctors, they were medical students. Uh, my dad was already a doctor. My mum was a medical student. They were going out at that point. It was in Uganda in the mid seventies. At one point, my dad, my dad was like, "Don't go to, don't go to class this week." My mum was like, "Why? Just don't go to campus. Like, there's going to be a coup," because he examined Idi Amin. He gave Idi Amin a medical examination for an hour a week before the coup. And he was like, I think something's up. Because he was, he, was he was a brilliant doctor. So he was like, I think something's up. 
see and that was it so they basically got evacuated by this brilliant um surgeon uh professor mccadam rest in peace he's now passed away professor mccadam basically got them on a plane um out of uganda to the uk evacuated them wow yeah do you you remember do you because you were you born in the uk no, I was born in the UK, so I wasn't you, alive then. Yeah, yeah. yeah so wow, yeah. wow, that's incredible. And is your wow. your mum still with us? She's she is she is she's a doctor still still working. You know that that generation will never stop working. Um, yeah, mid seventies now, but yeah, still still working, still practicing yeah. as a doctor. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. She took she she got retired. She she retired and they were kind of retired, and then they were like, she semi retired, and they were like, we need you. <laughs> so. <she's, laughs> oh wow that's really cool it too. Yeah, yeah yeah did your like i know i had um like both of my grandfathers passed away really young my uncle oh. passed away very young and i always felt like for me i always had this crazy thing in my mind even as a kid I was, because mm. i had to get to 36 you know i had to get to 36 it was 36 was a number that for me was associated with you know the passing of family yeah, members yeah. and you know, and then I hit 36 and I was like, wow, I'm 36. Then it was like, I've got to get to 38. That was the next one, you know, and then 40. And, and you know, here we are at 43 or 44 now. I can't remember how old I am. Yeah, I just went, I just went 43 myself. Yeah. 43. And um, I found like I had, like, I felt like I was trying to rush to get everything in. Did you feel like you were trying to achieve as much oh, as course. you could as, as early oh, as I, you could? I thought this is, sounds ridiculous, but. At the age of 36, I was like, what have I done with my life? Because my dad was 40 and he died, got killed in the war. Like, what, what have I done? What have I done with my life? Uh, and it was a real thing. When I passed his 40, at one point I was like, when I pass his 40th birthday, I'm going to go to, I'll go to Crete. I'll go to Crete for a couple of days and just sit and have like a glass of wine and have a nice meal. During the time when I pass his 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 uh the time of his passing when I, when I finally get older than him and I didn't do that in the end because I made peace with it before I had to go to Crete before I went to Crete I think I'd have done that if I hadn't made peace with it but as it turned out it was basically a mid after it was a mid morning when I finally um became older than my dad it was like mid morning it was like 11 p.m 11 a.m sorry I didn't really mark it with anything because I was like no I'm ready now yeah. but yeah it was it's a big thing mortality yeah and so actually a lot of this feels like uh it's just like bonus time. These are years I was not expecting to have, if that makes yeah. sense. I was not expecting to get to this point. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I know exactly how you feel. I know exactly how you feel. And it's, it seems crazy when you sort of, you know, you vocalize it and put it out there or you write mm. it down, but whilst it's happening and you're living through it, you just tend to tend to. Well, it's not, it, it seems crazy, but it's not because if it's happened to multiple members of your family, you start to believe it's going to happen to you because mm. actually at some point, there were members of your family going, oh my God, what if I die at 40? And they, they did. They did. Mm. Like it was true for them. Like men in my family generally die a few years earlier than women. Um, a lot of that was because of the conflict in Uganda, like the war, because my dad went back. Having left oh, as a refugee, okay. he then went back to Uganda to fight when the fighting started again, which is unusual. Like most refugees don't go back. My dad was like, I've got to go back and do this. Um, and he was a, was he a, he was a practicing doctor at the time. He was time like in one England? of the leading surgeons. He's on the, one of the first black surgeons wow. in the UK. Yeah. Like, so to sacrifice that and go back to fight in the war. I actually, yeah. And I just got a message from like one of his old friends a couple of days ago who was like, I read your book. Um, 
and then it's all about love i'd like to reach out because i knew him really well so i've got to get back in touch with him like it's wild um yeah yeah he sacrificed a huge yeah he yeah yeah that's crazy that's crazy yeah Yeah. it's amazing amazing um you know like i even talk about my grandma now she's you know what 90 early 90s and you know she moved Mm. over here couldn't speak the language and people have heard me tell this story before but couldn't speak the language no money no job three small children you know her husband dies at a young age and now like i say to my kids like we've got it so good you got no idea how difficult it Mm. would be for me to move to a country where i have all those obstacles um regardless of we've got google translate or not it's they did so much and and sacrificed so much for their families and for us to be here nowadays. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's another it's another level of devotion. I can't, I can't fathom. I mean, I don't, you don't have don't have kids of my own, so I look at it with a kind of amusement. I mean, first of all, just the sheer admin of having like <laughs> the admin of having multiple children, let alone one. The admin, <laughs> like, <laughs> it's it, it blows the mind. Yeah, yeah, you. you I think you've got more chances of securing an Italian citizenship in a in a speedy time than than, than <laughs> succeeding, you know, something like that these days. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's like I know um, I read in the past before. Like I've always, I always had this interpretation, like of your writing, and and again, mm. it's open to interpretation, and and I'm could be completely wrong, but I always get the sense there's a, like a lot of gratitude in it. And I know you oh. mentioned that before, which is cool about how, you know, you walk around. I've had that where I just go overseas and I'm fortunate mm. enough to go to Italy and watch football. And I'm like, it's going to be a new little draw. I, I couldn't care less. I'm just so happy to be here. <laughs> oh, big gratitude. You know, because if you think of, um, it sounds a bit, I always worry about sounding pretentious here, but if you think of all the people that have lived and died uh, and all the times people have lived and died, and I think of the life that I have, and what I've been allowed to do with it. And I've been able to explore and try things and, and fail and then like succeed at things. I've been try. I've been, I've got the time uh, to make the work I've wanted to make. And that has, that has been an absolute joy. And I've got to meet incredible people, talk to incredible people. Um, yeah. Like pure gratitude, I would say. Mm. Yeah. That, that I get to do any of this. And that, that sounds really, I know that sounds really like, Oh my God. And glib, but I genuinely, I genuinely feel that way about yeah. this. No, it's the same. I have the same for like, even for this podcast, I'm just wrapped that people will come on and, you know, take I mean, the, when take, you were talking you, to Roy about Fernando Gago, I was just like in my element. That's just my <laughs> obsession. Like <laughs> I'm just like at my, uh, Ryan, who I do the study podcast with, just rolls his eyes. Whenever I start talking about like Fernando Redondo and he's like so deep lying, you know, like, classy midfielders I, just, yeah. I can't get enough <laughs> i have a, a, a love of number five Ita- argentinian midfielders i don't know oh my goodness is. oh with the left foot as well you can't get enough of that can't yeah you've got redondo and gago was there don't like can be even like i know he was wearing 19 and had five for a period but yeah you oh know there's God. certain countries that have their you know like they're linked to, to certain as well linked to certain numbers and you know like yes, you see five you know, Five for me for Argentina, it's just magic. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's iconic. Even yeah. more weird enough, even even more for me, the ten is Brazil and the five is Argentina. And obviously I love Maradona, but the ten, it felt like the ten was heavy on the shoulders of almost anyone else mm. apart from Maradona. Like obviously Messi wears it with, you know, a plum. Uh 
but the five, there's something about that style of player as well. Like I remember like seeing when Redonda was voted um, the best foreign player in, in a La Liga over the last 10 years. And he'd only ever scored like two goals maximum in a season. And I'm like, how the hell? Like, and then I watched. And then, and then I. It watched. wasn't like he was playing every game either. You know, like he hit it. And then, career. and then when you watch him, and you're like, this man's a genius. Yeah. Like, it's actually yeah. laughable how good yeah. he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Career yeah. sort of littered with injury, and Gargo was the same. Like, oh, Gargo was I, unbelievable. I loved him. He was just, oh, such, such a joy to watch. So, so, you know, I love Cambiasso though because Cambiasso had the most pressure of all of them. Mm. Like, Cambiasso, obviously, Gargo, the injuries are what you know really stopped him achieving the level he should have but Cambiasso had to live with the Redondo comparison for his entire career and somehow he did it he like achieved his potential in the shadow of greatness and became a great himself mm. and I'm so happy it's one of those weird ones where like you're unfathomably happy for someone you're never going to meet or have any kind of conversation with but Cambiasso like watching him come through the ranks seeing his early games at Argentina under 20 and like, I was like this guy could actually do it this guy yeah. could actually do it. Like he had the audacity to be like a number five who wore, you know, left footed in the shadow of that Redondo. And like, it's, un it's a bit like, you see when Del Piero came along and Baggio was there. Yes. And yeah. Del Piero went. And it's, that for me is- It's all greatest. it was. It was just Del Piero, Baggio, Del Piero, Baggio, Del Piero, Baggio. The comparisons were, you know- And the guy came along and he outdid, you know, and I love Baggio, don't get me wrong. I, not even, I hate to even compare them too much, but mm. Del Piero came along and created something astonishing. In an era when all the number tens were like lights out, I mean, if Pep squad, if, if Pep was coaching Italy, Pep would have played all three of them at once. Pep would have played all of basically. Pep would have played a front four of Totti, Del Piero, Baggio, and Zola. Mm. You know he would have done it. He mm. would have had like an incredible back four and a two anchoring <laughs> the two. The two he would, the two fullbacks would have been flying, and the two defense midfielders would have anchored everything like Rodri. Complete anchors and the front four would have been unmarkable. You know, yeah. Pep would have done that. Yeah. 44. Can you imagine? <laughs> Which is, can you imagine well, it? that's funny because I always say that to people. I always say that in 2006, Lippi, who, you know, wasn't known as this attacking, swashbuckling mm. sort of manager, essentially ends even that Italy Germany, like the semi final against that mm. semi final, the extra time where it's just end to end. And, yeah. and you know, I'm still, I get goosebumps every time I talk about it. But he, he finishes the game, and I think at, at one stage there's like Giladino is on the field, Del Piero's in the field, Totti's on the field, Yaquinta's on the on the field for a point. Um, there's a point there where I think there's like five forwards. Um, and I just, love it. We love to see it, yeah. Yeah, and all it was was, oh, they got lucky and hit Germany on the counterattack. But, you know, that game, yeah, but that but, counter, and that's the, the game. Counter. That's For me, that's the game. And I actually had the pleasure of meeting Del Piero when he came to Sydney and played. Oh my God. Yeah. I took my dad up and we went and watched him train one day and, and, and there was barely anyone there. We were just watching him and we got a photo and a little chat after him. But I said to him, oh, that, that goal against Germany, I said, you, that made so, so many people happy. It wasn't funny, you know, and I'm not a massive Juventus fan, but I said, but that goal, I said, for me, I'll never, ever forget that. Because the redemption arc for him yeah, at like, that's the right. level. And what was amazing about that goal, I've rewatched it so many times and I can't work out when Giardino looks up. <laughs> I can't work out when he, because he plays the ball with his head down and he angles it, right? The incredible pass, the reverse pass. And we're like, but when does Giardino look up to check the run? 
because he doesn't do it like very late. He does it. He must do it much, much earlier. Mm. He knows they'll he sees it coming, before so. he even gets the ball potentially. So yeah. he must have very good peripheral vision anyway, because he does it with his head down. It's an, un- but the finish as well. Yeah. It's actually Fantastic. one of the most, it's such a cathartic finish. Yeah. Because after France 98, it was, you know, he had, uh, sorry, in 2002. 2000, year 2000. Yeah. It's Euro 2000 and 2002. And then like, it's, yeah, he, you know, he can never do it on the big stage. He can never do it for Italy. It's always the pressure, mm. of, you know, playing with the Azuri jersey on. And, and that moment just sort of washes it all away. And, and you know, even when you talk about because, goal yeah. celebrations, like Fabio Grosso's goal celebration, because that whole World Cup, oh he just God. comes from nowhere. Same with Marco Tardelli's goal celebration. Yeah, it was the Tardelli. The Grosso one was the Tardelli one. But it's like the, whir- the whirling arms, wasn't it? When he yeah, scores. It's just... And it's the Pirlo... The pillow pass when he's like looking at the touchline at the moment he plays the pass. Mm, yeah, that is, I mean, Pirlo. Don't even get me started on that. I remember watching Pirlo when he was a ten for Inter, and I was. I remember even thinking like, you know, he was too slow to be that high up the pitch. It was almost like a Tony Kroos type player. It was almost like a late era Tony Kroos in terms of his pace, and was like just too high up to make a difference. I thought, oh well, he's not going to. He'll be just another like very good ten. Who's just not quick enough, but just physically not quick enough to like make the difference. Mm. And the genius of just putting him in front of the back four. Oh my God. I think that was in Brescia. I think Brescia that was, was the first Brescia. place that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he when went he to with, combining Baggio. Yeah. And he went to Regina, which is like close to my, where my dad's from. And he, he played right. there with, I don't know if you remember Nakamura, the Japanese of course, uh, number 10 yeah, that went to Celtic. So they were, um, they were both at Regina for a period, but I remember when Pirlo went on loan, Regina and he was just yeah he was fantastic because it was almost like he was away from everyone away from the pressure just did his thing um Love yeah it. it's an incredible player incredible player yeah and it, like even I talked to Stuart Horsfield um who wrote the book on Brazil 982 and he writes and contributes with these football times and we've talked about that Brazil Italy game whereas oh I always God. I said to him if you had you know and other people have suggested this too in the past I know but if you have aliens come from another planet and you, they want to watch one game of football, yes. that Brazil Italy 1982 match is is up there for you know games. To it show. is up there, but aliens might also conclude they might be like, ah, so this is how you destroy all the poets then, because <laughs> because I think culturally culturally significant. If, if Socrates had won that World Cup, what that does for. Socrates' political standing, it takes him to a level that is just off the scale. And it was so weird that Brazil, you know, Italy were brilliant in that game, of course, deserved to win the tournament, of course. That's like one of the major turning points because that the World Cup's funny because at that point, not so much now, but the World Cup at one point dictated the tactical direction of, of like a football, right? Like, and if people won a certain way, that validated the winning method. So when Brazil lost that way, it invalidated the method. And then I think that ushered in an era of, oh, defensive football works. Or, or football played, not defensive, but reactive football is the football that will set the tone. And so then it was like, okay, everyone looks to Italy now. Whereas before they would have been like, okay, let's look to Brazil. And so then you see this incredible, like, you know, influx of players to Italy because at that point, Italy can compete financially with the Premier League. And we don't talk enough about the fact that like, before football was gentrified, Italy was the lifestyle choice. Like, why would you not want to live in Florence and play football there? You know, live in Turin, Turin, you're up in the mountains, you know, when you, you know, quite quickly, you're living in Naples. I mean, the food, the coast, Genoa. I mean, Italy is a place, as a, a lifestyle choice for footballers, is astonishing. And there was no social media. So 
that everything was uploaded to the gram so you could just live in the moment um i mean the food the wine the football the adulation for the players it was a wonderland i'm sure if you talk to a lot of footballers of that era they're like i don't think it get any better than that i don't think it can actually looking back i think it was that was the that was the absolute peak mm. yeah have you been to watch football live in italy before still not still not and i want to it's a dream to do that uh i narrowly missed out uh, fernando redondo when he signed for ac milan played 45 minutes against ancona and i was in ancona that night but didn't know that the friendly was on so I would have seen him play, which would have been just, you know, it would have been like his first game back, but that would have been a dream to see him just play 45 minutes. Um, I'm trying to get to a Napoli game. That would be the first <laughs> game I watch because they're just, yeah. Yeah. They're just yeah. an absolute thrill. They're a thrill right now. Yeah. 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 That's right. That's right. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I should, uh, I should let you run. I know you're a busy man, but yeah. Where can, um, where can people find you if they, if they want to track you down, listen, read, et cetera. Oh, wow. Et cetera? Well, first, First of all, thank you for having me, Frank. It's been an absolute joy. Um, I could clearly talk about this for like three hours. Um, uh, the Stadio Football Podcast is the best place to find me at the moment. Um, you can just like search Stadio on all the apps, S-T-A-D-I-O. I did that with Ryan Hun, amazing co-host and produces the podcast brilliantly. Uh, also on the Wrighty's House podcast, which is once every two weeks, which is with Ian Wright, um, the great man. Uh, my writing about football is ringer.com forward slash soccer. And then if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm just my surname, Okwonga. That's O-K-W-O-N-G-A. Yeah, that's me. Perfect. Perfect. I should, um, I should quickly ask you and mention that. So you, you co-wrote a book with Ian Wright called Striking yeah, yeah, Out. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, it's not yeah. necessarily about football, but for those, who, for those of us who have kids, can you give us a, a brief rundown yeah, sure. of, of what Very the book and, and what it meant to write a book aimed to that? you know, eight to 14 year old market and, 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 the, and the impact that it's had? Yeah, so very briefly. Um, so Ian basically was going to do a book about his life, like a autobiography. And then I was like, well, people already know your life story. Why don't give something a bit different? So we came up with a kind of concept, him and I, we had a chat about what the concept could be. And the idea we stumbled upon was, imagine if Ian basically met a younger version of himself. So basically Ian was walking around like Sunday league pitches and happened to meet a young boy or watch a young boy who reminded him of himself when he was playing. So a young boy with the same challenges as Ian, like, you know, difficult family situation, um, wanting to make it, but not rated, overlooked by scouts. So we did a kind of like karate kid where, you know, the whole point of karate kid is like, you know, old guy meeting a young guy who's trying to make his way and just mentors him. And we had Ian kind of be like a kind of like master Yoda, like karate kid figure to like mentor this young footballer on and off the field. So that's the kind of rough outline to it. Um, came out uh, last year, did really well, sold well. And um, yeah, we won the Sunday Times Children's Book Sports of the Year, Children's Sports Book of the Year, which you're very that's proud great. about. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really proud to have worked on that with him. Yeah, yeah it's cool. It's like, you know, it's a, there's a lot in the book about you know, love, education, um, having the support of family and, you know, or yeah, not even yeah, family, but, a, yeah. you know, a mentor, you know, and just how important those things are for, for oh, that generation yeah. and for our kids. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's great. It's really great work. Oh, thank you so much. Well, we're really proud of it. And um, yeah, trying to get adapted for TV one of these days. Uh, we will see, we'll see how we can do that, but um, yeah, I'd love to get it out there. I'd love to do a sequel. Uh, so we'll see, we'll see what happens, but yeah, thanks so much for bringing that right. up because I'm, I'm really proud of that project. Really yeah, no, you should be. It's awesome. I know you've mentioned, and I've read in your work, you say 
you've got a sign above your desk. I don't know if it's still there. Um, oh, in the old flat. No, it's it's not in the new. Do you know, thanks for reminding because I put up the new one. But please, yep. yeah, tell the story. Please, yeah. And it says we do the best we can in the time that is given to us. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, I didn't butcher the that's quote. Absolutely. That's absolutely. That's a perfect. That's the perfect representation. Actually, thanks for reminding because I moved flat uh, a couple of months ago, and I haven't put that up in the new place. So I will do that. Yeah. And um, thank you so much. You've more so done that. You've done that more than ever. So yeah, I appreciate your time and I appreciate all your work, Musa. It's a been a real pleasure oh, star, frank absolute pleasure listen like forza napoli <laughs> 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 thanks musa my pleasure my pleasure that was a great chat with musa akwanga who of course you can find as the co-host of the study your podcast um and his books are out and available now as as he mentioned um, thanks very much for listening to the podcast uh, don't forget to rate review and share the podcast where you can at all it all helps. Uh, thanks again once for, for listening and enjoy your culture.